Acts chapter 2. Let's start in verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, would you uh, refresh my spirit this morning for this hour, this service. I just ask, Lord, that you would fill me back up to, to speak your word and to teach what is here and what matters and what's important. I also pray, Lord, that you will um, direct the words of this teaching toward this service, toward those gathered here now. That there are personal things, there are individual concepts, ideas, messages, Father, even that you would get across to each of us here. I pray we would hear fresh and new, as for most it's for the first time this morning, but for me may it be as the first time in teaching this. And Lord, help us to keep it simple. By your Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. They were on retreat in the Upper Galilee, a place called Caesarea Philippi. Jesus had taken the apostles up there to kind of get away from the crowds, away from the hubbub. The the furthest northern section is called Banyas today. Caesarea Philippi is off the beaten path, like I said, far north, away from Jerusalem, away from the Sea of Galilee, away from all the clamor of the crowds and all the busyness that had been taking place, all the activity in Jesus' ministry. He takes the guys up to the north, six months out now from the crucifixion. And he asks them, I believe, the single most important question a person can answer. In Matthew 16, verse 15, Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's the question. That's the one that will make or break your entire life. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was a wonderful statement. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, I also say to you, you are Peter, Petros, little pebble. And on this rock, this Petra, this confession of faith in me, that I am the Christ, Jesus says, I will build my church. And it's the first time the word church is used in the Bible. I will build my church, Jesus says. My ecclesia. In the Greek, ek being out and klesia being called, called out, the called out ones. They can be translated assembly, but it's more than that. It's those called. It's used ekklesia as of a shepherd calling his flock. The shepherd will ekklesia, call out his flock to follow. And of course they do follow because they hear his voice and they know him, Jesus said. 
I'm going to do this. I'm going to build this. I'm going to call this out, Jesus says. I will build my church. And six months later, he was dead. Of course, three days after that, he was alive. But then 40 days later, he left the planet. Ten days after that, Jesus began to build his church. And on that day, Acts 2.41 tells us, there were added about 3,000 souls. One day, one service, one sermon. 3,000 saved. 3,000 in the water. 3,000 baptized on that first day. Acts chapter 4, verse 4, not long after, many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Add in women and children. You're talking 10, 15,000 people. And that's the last time we get a roll call for the church. Last time, anyway, that the church is numbered, given a number. We know that ultimately, beyond all this, the last numbered count we get is an innumerable multitude around the throne. Revelation 7 tells about it. Revelation 19, it's amazing. And we can't even imagine right now what that's going to be like. The number of people, the sea of saved humanity worshiping God at that time will be breathtaking. But Acts tells us that things just kept rolling forward. Things kept going on. Acts chapter 6 verse 7, the word of God kept spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Acts chapter 12 verse 24 says the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Acts chapter 19 verse 20. So the Lord, the the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And you know what? They didn't have any of the resources that we have today. For Peter, a text was a scroll. For the disciples, they had nothing that we have in terms of technology, in terms of opportunity, in terms of communication, none of that. But when you have the Word of God and the Spirit of Christ, nothing else matters. You don't need anything else. Jesus builds His church. It's one of the most significant verses in all the Bible to me, and I'll tell you why. September of 2003, I was at a Calvary Pastors Conference. I was in the midst of a very interesting month in my life. At the beginning of the month, on the 2nd of September, I heard a call from the Lord to plant a church right here on North Whidbey Island. I thought it was nuts. So did everybody else. But I knew what I knew. So through that month, I was praying about it. I was talking with our close friends about it. We were, we were trying to come up with it. You know, is this really the Lord? Is this really what He wants? I'm at a Calvary conference. Throughout the entire conference, and I won't take time to go into it right now, but every speaker was talking about church planting, and that wasn't even the theme of the conference. Every speaker was talking about things having to do with you know, answering my questions that I had for the Lord. On Tuesday night of this conference that ran through to Wednesday morning, I finally had had enough. I'm like, okay, God, I'm in. So I called my wife that afternoon. I called Jeff and, and Penelope D'Angelo. I called Mike and Leslie Freeman. I said, hey, would you guys come out here tonight and come hear the speaker, uh, come pray with Cheryl and I, and, and grab some dinner with us afterwards. I want to talk about what I think is going on. And so they came. And we sat down, and Gail Irwin was the speaker that night. 
Gail got up, and this guy, if you've ever heard him, is hysterical. Absolutely hysterical, great Bible expositor. And he got up and starts teaching the Word. He goes straight to Matthew 16. And this is what he said. He said, Jesus said, I will build my church. You know what that means? And he looks right at me and he goes, it means you don't have to. Okay, (laughs) I'm in. If I don't have to do it, I'll do it. You know, if this whole idea of planting a church is not my problem, it's his problem, that's the last question I had. How do I do this? We hadn't even met the Gilmores yet. We had nowhere to meet. This had only been churning for about three weeks. And all of a sudden, I will build my church. And he hammered this over and over and over. How do you know what you're doing? We don't know what we're doing, but he said, I will build my church. I was so excited. We all went out to dinner afterwards. We sat down and looked across the table and said, guys, we're in. Cheryl and I are going to do this. We're not even asking you to do it. We're just telling you that we're going to do it. Penelope says, oh, we're in. And Jeff goes, no, we're not. (laughs) He's like, whoa, 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 whoa there, sister. Let's pray about this. Let's think about this. Well, they're sitting right over there. So you know what happens. I will build my church. But here's the thing. Jesus does not build His church the way we would think it should be built. He doesn't use our strategies. He doesn't use our techniques. He goes completely off the map and does it His own way. Thank the Lord, because we would be an absolute catastrophe. In fact, if it was up to Peter and the Twelve to build the church, can you even imagine what a mess it would have been? Jesus said, I will build my church. By all human standards, the way he has built his church over 2,000 years is not the way we would do it. Consider Peter's opening sermon. This is anything but seeker-friendly. If you read read through Acts chapter 2 and ask yourself, is this the first sermon that a non-believing person should hear? The answer would be a resounding no. Are you kidding? He starts with eschatology. The study of the end times. Peter comes barreling out of the gate like a bull running in the streets of Pamplona. And he says, men of Judea, what you see taking place here around you is last day's Bible prophecy. It's breaking loose. And then he starts to preach. He says, you guys remember Jesus, right? Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. What? I mean, you start out with eschatology and move immediately to conviction. You don't even tell some nice stories to lead up to it. You just slam us. You nail us. We killed Jesus. What are you saying? And then he goes on. He launches into an intense exegesis of Psalm 16. Breaking it down, he pulls in Psalm 132. He draws off of Psalm 110. Using the Hebrew Scriptures, he explains to them how incontrovertibly Resurrection is exactly what God said was going to happen. They're stunned. They're blown away. Finally, he concludes it saying, you know, the same Jesus, he is both Lord and Messiah. And he repeats, the one whom you crucified. That was sermon number one. Well, Lord, I wouldn't do it that way. Apparently, Peter didn't get the memo that what people really need is chicken soup for the soul. Right? That's what people are looking for. Easy little bite-sized anecdotes and stories washed down with a bubbly can of Bible light. But then 3,000 people got saved that day. I, I can't even imagine that kind of response, instantaneous response. Point is, when you have the Word of God and the Spirit of Christ, nothing else matters. 
You don't need to do anything else. That's the church that Jesus built. And in these last days, in this complex, complicated, convoluted world, what I believe is most needed is the church simply being the church. Brothers and sisters, it is time for the church to stop being everything but the church. It is time for the church to get our heads back on straight and be what we were called to be. Called out. And that's what we're going to talk about and look at. Being the church. What does that mean? It's what came next. Last week we talked about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The the surge of, of godly divine power of strength to do and be what we cannot do and be on our own. And then the church begins to just be the church. Watch this. Acts 2.42 They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's it. That's the church being the church. I'm going to give you seven things to jot down and some other things to jot down within the seven things, okay? Number one. The church continued with simplicity. They continued with simplicity. That's what Mitch was talking about. Keep it simple. That was the message God put on Mitch's heart. I just heard that for the first time this morning. I'm like, oh, cool. They told Mitch, keep it simple. That's what we're talking about this morning. They continued with simplicity. If anyone comes to you and says, what is the church supposed to be about? You take them right to Acts 2.42. That's it. Right there. There's the outline. So what we were told at the very beginning, well then, why do I see churches doing all these other things? Well, because, because we complicate things. That's human nature. Just look at my downstairs closet. Every year around this time, that place, it, it's just, it's a dump. It's the catch-all for everything in the house that we don't know what to do with. It just, we just throw it all in there. And every year, usually springtime, but now it's, it's into summer. You know, Cheryl's been... She's had surgeries, and I'm not going to clean that thing by myself. So it's coming around time now. Again, we've got to clean this thing out because we complicate everything. We've got stuff upon stuff and things, and we didn't. And the Craigslist is killing me. Anyway, it's simple. Now note this. Their simplicity was continual and devoted. Continual and devoted. It's one word in the Greek. Actually, it's kind of a, it's a single word, but it's made up of two words. It's proskartereo. And proskartereo, pros means toward. Kartereo simply means to be strong, to be enduring. So the word means to be enduring toward, or to be strong toward. If you're talking about an object, say, guys, you have a car that you love, that you're working on, that you want to restore, well, that means you could be pros cartereo, <laughs> a little pun there, cartereo. You could be pros cartereo toward the car, meaning you give it diligent attention. Diligent attention. Focused attention. But if the same word is used about people, it means loyalty. And the best kind of loyalty. Non-stop, devoted, attentive loyalty. They were continually devoting themselves to four things. Which I'll get to in a second, but listen. They were continually devoted because church wasn't what they did. It was who they were in Jesus. 
Do you understand that church is not what you go to? It is supposed to be who you are. It's who we are as people who are called out. It's not what takes place on Sunday morning. People say, I'm going to church. No, you're not. You're going to go to be with the church. You can say it that way. Church is not what's happening right now. Except that we are all gathered together. Church is who we are. The ecclesia. And so they were continually devoted because it wasn't about a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. It was about every moment of every day. It's who they had become. An entirely new breed of people. And I want you to recognize and embrace as we go through Acts, these are your people. 2,000 years ago, these are your people. These are my people. These are not some ancient race of a different time that can't relate and I don't understand them and they wouldn't understand me and, and we have nothing really in common. Wrong, oh Mary Lou. These are your people. And I apologize to Mary Lou, whoever you might be. Your people. We just happen to be at the end of the age. They happen to have been at the beginning of the age. But we're the same people and we're going to be together in a marvelous way for all eternity. These are my peeps. And they're yours as well. And Peter had this to say about them and about us, about the church in the world today. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out. Kaleo suek, which is just ecclesia. Ecclesia, kaleo suek. You're the called out. And we have been called out that we might proclaim His excellencies, called out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Can you fathom what that means? I mean, grasp that for just a second. If that alone could change everything in your life, if you realize, I am among the people of God. I'm one of His. Uh, They're my people, the first century church. Just as well as the last century church, they're my people. And all together, we're the people of God. That is just awesome. I pray, Lord, let me live that way, that I am, I am among the people of God. He says, now you've, you've received mercy. You had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. People of God. He called you out. He built us up. So don't complicate it. And then he lays out a format for us. Watch this. Verse 42, the apostles' teaching. They simply were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles' teaching? One word. Jesus. You realize the apostles' teaching was not based on the New Testament because it wasn't even written yet. The Gospels didn't exist in writing The letters of Paul, letters of Peter, Jude, James, those were not circulating the church yet. All they had was the Hebrew Scriptures. But they were preaching Jesus just as Peter did on this opening sermon. Because as many of you know, Jesus is throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. I don't need the New Testament to introduce someone to Jesus. I can do it through the Old Testament Scriptures easily. He's all over the place. It's all about Him. It is these, Jesus said, that testify of me. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, O God. So it's all about Him, and they were preaching Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, His Lordship, His coming, His kingdom, all using the Hebrew Scriptures to do it. 
The apostles' teaching and the people, man, they were devoted to it. Oh, Peter's on tonight? I'm there. James is going to teach? Oh, man, I can't wait. John's talking? Continually devoted, day in, day out. And by the way, based on Peter's first sermon, they went deep. The apostles did not skirt along the surface in their Bible teaching. They dug in. They carved out and served up good meat. Meat that would fill and and strengthen the soul and the spirit. Meat that we need if we are to be the church in this world. It's been said that what is in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. And so they revealed it by the Spirit. Paul, later on, even got after the early church. I believe it was Paul. There's argument about this that he wrote the book of Hebrews. Some say no, it was Apollos. Some say others. It doesn't matter to me except that I think it was Paul and everyone else is wrong. But Paul gets after the early church when their diet went soft. You can tell, you can read this, it's in Hebrews 5 and 6. He's getting really excited because he's revving up to talk about Jesus and to give them a picture of Jesus and an explanation about Jesus that literally is mind-blowing. And he's going to do it by talking about this guy out of Genesis 14 named Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Even as he's writing the book of Hebrews, he stops and goes, Oi, <laughs> Melchizedek i got to explain who Melchizedek is because most of them probably don't even know. And it frustrates him. Listen to what he says. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He's an infant. But solid food, that is strong meat, is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. He's like, if you guys were in the Word, if you were studying the Word, later he'll say you should all be teachers by now, but most of you aren't. Most of you don't even know what the Word says about Melchizedek, so I'm going to have to explain it to you before I can tell you why it's so significant about Jesus. And he's frustrated by this because what Paul sees, what the Hebrew writer sees, is a church that is going soft on their diet. In my opinion, the Bible should be studied with steak knives, not pudding spoons. And yet, how many of you have been in a church teaching environment where you could liken it to pudding cups? How many of you have taught pudding? I did for years. I can't get back the number of years as a youth pastor I taught pudding. I praise God we have a youth pastor who's serving up steak every Tuesday and Thursday to our kids or every Tuesday and Wednesday. Real food that will mature and will strengthen us. The apostles teaching, man, fill the plate. Dig in. Eat up. It's been said that a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who's not. So simple. So simple. Feed on the Word. Continually devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. Oh, cool. So they had picnics? Maybe. Potlucks? I'm sure on occasion. The word is koinonia. You've probably heard it before. And it is a huge word in terms of meaning for the church. And a word I think that in many ways we, we've kind of maybe lost connection with. Koinonia. Fellowship. 
an article in the Washington Post yesterday. I love when this happens. I finish my notes, I finish my study, I kind of set it aside, and then I open up the paper and discover, wow, (laughs) they wrote this so that I could add it into my notes. So here it is. A study in the American Journal of Epidemiology by researchers at the London School of Economics and Erasmus University Medical Center in the Netherlands found that the secret to sustained happiness lies in participation in religion. We've been saying this for 2,000 years, and they just discovered this? This one guy, Mauricio Avendano, said, The church appears to play a very important social role in keeping depression at bay and is also a coping mechanism during periods of illness, especially later in life. Yeah, that's what we've been saying. So glad you caught up. These studies just amaze me. But he also said this, and this really cracks me up. He said, it's not clear to us how much this is about religion per se, or whether it may be about the sense of belonging and not being socially isolated. Why that cracks me up is because the study compared four social areas. Four areas that people go for socialization. Area number one, volunteering or working with a charity. Area number two, taking educational courses or classes. Area number three, participation in a political or community campaign. And area number four, participating in church. They're all social things. They're all social activities. But of the four, participation in church is the only one that resulted in sustained happiness. It's the only one that over the long haul, in the study of over 9,000 people, they saw really made the difference. Getting involved in a political campaign, you know what they found out about that? It stressed people out. Brilliant. I'm poking fun at these guys, but you know what? For 2,000 years, the Lord has said what you need is fellowship. You need the church. This is not about it. It's not a choice thing. It's a need thing. We need each other. We need koinonia. And my friends, the church is not a club. This is not a social activity. It is not a clique. And it's not about potlucks and picnics. I love picnics. But they don't make the difference. What makes the difference is koinonia fellowship. What do you mean? The word koinonia is used 20 times in the New Testament. 12 times it's translated fellowship. It's the other 8 times that fascinate me. Because it's also translated contribution, communication, communion, participation, and sharing. Those are all aspects of koinonia, where the same word, if you're reading it in the Greek, you would just see that word popping up, right and left, koinonia, koinonia. Let me give you two examples. 2 Corinthians 9.13, Paul is talking about giving, and he says, because of the proof given by this ministry... They will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your liberality of your contribution to them all, of your koinonia to them all. Paul equates the idea of of giving financial support to the other churches. He says that's koinonia. That's fellowship. You're fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters in Christ even in your giving. Philippians chapter 1 verse 3 Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, 
Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. In view of your koinonia, your participation. That's the difference between the church as a social organization and all these other organizations people might get involved in. The church is where you participate in the gospel. Where brothers and sisters are brothers and sisters in Christ, not in like-minded things. This is not like a sewing club. You know, this is not a car club. Oh, we all like each other's cars. We all drive down the road in our cars and we all pull over in our cars and say, hey, look at our cars. Well, that's neat. But it will not bring you sustained happiness. The church, there are car clubs and churches, motorcycle clubs and churches. There are all kinds of clubs and churches. That's not what brings sustained happiness. Participation in the gospel is where it comes from. It makes us completely different because Jesus said in that realm of koinonia where two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm there. That's what makes it different. That's what changes everything. That's where my sustained happiness comes from. So koinonia, fellowship, it implies this continual devotion to one another in Christ. Simple. Simple. The apostles' teaching. Fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. What fascinates me is that people argue against certain things. There are those, and maybe you have heard this, or maybe you've been one of them, who have argued against the idea of breaking of bread being communion. Those who say, no, no, it's not communion, it's just a meal. Just breaking bread, because they use that term. Well, you're right, they did use that term to indicate simply a meal. In the Middle East, breaking bread with someone, man, it's a euphemism for taking a meal together. However... In the context of the early church, it meant something different. It came to mean something different. Starting on that night where Jesus broke bread, gave it to the apostles and said, Take, eat of this. This is my body which is broken for you. On resurrection evening, after he had shown up and he walked with the two men along the road to Emmaus, Bible says he was going to keep going, and they said, no, come, come stay with us this night, it's late. And so he went in with them. And the moment Jesus broke bread, they knew it was him. They just, they recognized him, and he disappeared. Love it. Why do you love it, Rick? Because I'm going to do that. Mark my words, I'm going to do that. With some of y'all, we're going to be standing, I'm going to go, hey, let's break bread. And I'm out of there, just for fun. Jesus broke bread and gave it a whole new meaning. The church was continually devoted, simply devoted to breaking bread. What does it mean to be devoted to breaking bread? It raises this whole idea of what we call communion, the Lord's Supper. It raises it above rites and rituals, above ceremony and and sacrament. It becomes this thing. Listen, it's an observable act of koinonia. That's what breaking bread is. We need to think along those lines. When we take communion together, yeah, I'm I'm remembering Jesus, I'm praising Him for what He's done in my life even now, and I'm proclaiming His death until He comes, but I am also in koinonia with my brothers and sisters. An observable act of koinonia, of fellowship. As we break the bread, as we take the juice, we're taking this body together because we are the body of Christ. Koinonia, breaking of bread. 
And by the way, to back that up, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ, a koinonia in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a koinonia in the body of Christ? Man, when we break bread and share the cup, it's all about koinonia. It's the togetherness that makes the church so different, so unique. So, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, simple. And number four, prayer. Only that's a mistranslation. (gasps) What? Look at it. In fact, if you have a pen, I'm going to encourage you to write something in here. Are we adding words to the Bible? No, we're just going to tell you what it actually says. Prayer is in the plural form. You need to add an S on the end of it. Prayers. It's prayers. Why does that matter? Listen, you can pray anytime, anywhere, by yourself. But I believe the reason why the Holy Spirit is describing, uses the word prayers in the plural, He's describing a plurality of people praying together. And that is different. That is always different. Gang, praying together is what happens here at 5.30 every Wednesday night. There's a group that prays together. And I long for the day they don't have any room to pray in the fireside room anymore. They just got to come in here. Because the saints are praying together. We have times all throughout the week where people can pray together. And you don't even have to wait for those times. You know that? Grab a believer and pray together. Because something happens when the prayers, plural, of the saints are offered up to God. Amazing things happen. Lightning strikes. Thunder peals. Things get shaken up. What are you talking about, Rick? Turning your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 8. Last book in the Bible, easy to find. Revelation chapter 8. While you're turning there, listen. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 says when he, that is Jesus, had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now watch this. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. You know, that doesn't happen. That's rare. Typically, what's going on in heaven, the Bible tells us 24-7, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And every time that the cherubim say that, the elders fall down before the throne and they shout out praise and the cherubim, they start praising again. And it's a constant worship service. But not in Revelation 8. Here, all of a sudden, silence. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints. Plural, plural, plural. On the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke, verse 4, of the incense with the prayers of all the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. All the prayers of all the saints gathered together before the throne, offered up as it was incense. And listen, why does heaven go silent? There are several possibilities, and I'm not going to be dogmatic, but I am certain of this one. When all the saints pray, heaven quiets down. 
When the saints pray together, God says to the angels, or as Anna Marie says to Naomi and David, shh, 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 quiet. What, Father? My people are praying. I want to hear them. When all the saints pray. Listen, God hears you when you pray by yourself. But there is a different dynamic when we pray together. When the saints offer up prayers together, what is that dynamic? Look at verse 5. Oh man, I lost my place. Newman. Hang on. Okay. Verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. You can't tell me that prayer doesn't cause results. That the prayers of all the saints shake the world at that point in the tribulation. I guarantee you right now the prayers of all the saints shake things up. Stir people up. Affect what's going on in the spiritual realm all around us. Continually, continually devote yourself to prayers. And add an S in your Bibles. The prayers of the saints of the church. There is a power in koinonia prayers. I cannot get on my own. There is a strength that comes in the combining of prayers together with other believers. And I guarantee you our prayers smell sweeter to God when they're all mixed together. The apostles' teaching, simple. Fellowship, simple. The breaking of bread and prayer. Where are the projects? Where are the programs? Where are the procedures of the church in Acts 2.42? You can't find them. Where are the politics? They don't exist. Nothing wrong with these things except the politics. Nothing wrong with programs. Nothing wrong with procedures. Projects are okay. That's all fine. There's a lot of good things that can be done. But what we're talking about here is what does it mean for the church simply to be the church instead of all these other things? Now, I've made it my business, wow, for 30 years of my life to pay attention to what's happening in the church. It's interesting to me. The articles written, things going on. And I'm talking about the larger church throughout the world. Different denominations, different publications, what people are doing, what they're saying, what name pastors are are doing, how things are shifting around. I watch this stuff. And over the last, uh, I, I could say 20 years, it's been about 20 years, I keep hearing certain things come up from church leaders, named pastors. One of the things they say is the church of today does not look like the church of the first century. To which I respond, no, duh. Of course we don't look like the church of the first century. We happen to be 2015. We're not the church of the first century. We are the same in terms of we're all still the church. But yeah, things are going to be different. This generation doesn't look like the last generation. So, you know, when I hear that, well, this just isn't the way the church used to be. Well, were you there? Because all I read when I read what the church was about, I can see right here in Acts chapter 2. Pretty simple. But they go on. And one of the things that I hear a lot is is when these guys decry boring, traditional, predictable services. 
always looking for ways to spice things up or reorganize the format or do it differently. And a lot of them make a lot of money writing about it. A lot of church people go, oh, have you read that book about how we should do church differently? Yeah, I did. See you Sunday. Okay. If you come to the bridge, if you've been here more than once, if this is your second time or more, you know what we're going to do. Absolutely predictable. We're going to come in here. We're going to have fellowship time. Thank God for the foyer out there. Foyer is not even a biblical word, but the space is great. That we can interact and hang out and grab coffee and talk and hug each other and just be together. I love it. Koinonia. But we come into this auditorium, sanctuary. You know what we're going to do. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to worship God. There will be some prayers. Then we're going to pause and we're going to take communion together. And once we're done taking communion, someone's going to get up and give some announcements. They know they can't take very long or I get on to them halfway through the next week. And then we have teaching. We have another song, we pray, and we're done. That's the format. Pretty predictable. Been doing it 11 years. Kind of boring. No, it's not. And i got to tell you something. I think when people get all up in arms about the church and how we do things on a Sunday morning, they're confusing the format with the fruit. We have the format. Acts 2.42. Simple. Just do what it says. The apostles' teaching, breaking bread, prayer, fellowship. That's what we do. That's what we gather to do. We make sure at least every Sunday morning we're doing this together. Many of you make sure you do it at least every Sunday morning and Sunday night. We do these things together. Predictable. But not boring. That's the format. But what Luke goes on to now after leaving verse 42, in the next few verses, he goes into the fruit. And the fruit is what takes place all the time. The format, make sure you're doing this. The fruit is what comes out of that format. And gang, secondly, note this, they continued in vitality. And hold on to your hats because we're going to move quickly now. They continued in simplicity, but they also continued in vitality. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. We see the Spirit at work every day, moment by moment, things going on. A vitality of life. This was the life of the church. Verse 42, that's just the format. Very simple. It's what they did when they came together. The rest of the time was awesome. So was, by the way, I think the format. And don't get me wrong, because I love being here with you every Sunday. And I don't care if it's predictable. It's God's Word. And God's Word is always exciting. But then we get out of here and we live our lives and things start to happen. It says they kept feeling a sense of awe. You might want to jot down, that's the word in the Greek, phobos, where we get phobia. Because they weren't just like, whoa, this is cool, dude. They were like, fear. They were experiencing a sense of fear. For the non-believer, because stuff was happening that was terrifying. That guy was lying there lame for 30 years and now he's dancing around. That scares me. That woman couldn't speak. I know, she was a mute and now we can't shut her up. That's terrifying. (laughs) That guy was deaf. That guy was blind. That guy was dead. That's terrifying. And the non-believer looks at it and goes, what's going on, man? What's happening? And the believer goes, it's God. It is God. 
Jesus never really left. His Spirit is at work. This is awesome. And that's healthy, gang. There is not enough healthy fear in the church today. And I'm not talking about legalistic fear that you're going to step out and do something wrong. And oh no, no, praise God, we live by grace. But there needs to be more fear. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31 tells us. Terrifying! But according to Paul, fear is absolutely vital. And you might want to jot this verse down. I think it's the most important verse outside of the passage that I'm going to give you this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.11 Why is fear so important in our faith? Because Paul writes, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. What are you saying, Rick? Don't ask me, ask Paul. What are you saying, Paul? Fear is a motivator. Holy, awesome, righteous fear. I fear the Lord. I fear that He is faithful. Why would you fear that? Because I know He's faithful to save me, but I'm also certain that He is faithful to His Word that if you reject Him, you will not be saved. And that terrifies me for you. If you happen to not believe. And so fear, I know the fear of the Lord. I know who we're dealing with here. I know how awesome His power is. And in knowing that, I'm going to persuade people. I'm going to take the Gospel to people. You do not want to fall into the hands of the living God. What you want to do is fall into His arms by the grace of Jesus Christ. It's not what they did. It's who they had become. The apostles' teaching, breaking bread, fellowship, prayer, that's, that's what they did. But it's who they became. And so they not only continued with vitality, number three, they continued in commonality. Look at verse 44. It says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Commonality. They shared it all. You might read this and go, Sounds like communism. Or socialism. It's one of those isms. Are you saying we have to do this? No, that Luke didn't say that the apostles commanded that they all share everything. They just did. They just did. No one told them to. It's just what happened in the early church because they were all together. Just it just happened. And by the way, communism says what's yours is mine. Jesus said, what's mine is yours. That's the difference. And here in the first century church, the difference was they were giving up everything freely. They just said, you know, I don't need this extra house. I don't need that car. I don't need all of these clothes. I got my in and out t-shirt. That's good enough for me. I don't need all this stuff. What do you need? How can I bless you? Hey, it belongs to the Lord anyway, right? So they were continuing in commonality, which again was not a requirement of church membership. It wasn't the format. It was simply the fruit of the Spirit in them. You might ask, well, why were they doing this though? It's a little weird. Why were they selling off all their stuff? You know why? Because they absolutely believed that the return of Jesus was imminent. And when you believe that Jesus could come at any moment, it is amazing how you just don't care about stuff anymore. Well, if you know that He's coming today, 
How many of you who baked a pie for the pie baking contest would have wasted the time if you knew he was coming today before the picnic even started? Well, we're going to do that. How would it change us <laughs> if we believed truly that Jesus' coming was imminent? We would not pursue all the goo that gums up our lives. We would just have all things in common and share and give and whatever. And you need that, we'll take it. I don't, you know, I haven't used it. We have a rule in my house. If you haven't used it in six months, it's gone, baby. It's gone. Kids, Naomi's got like 900 Barbies. They're gone. I'm taking them out. Not like, that sounds weird. I'm taking Barbie out. No, I mean, we're getting rid of them. You can keep like 10, and that's, in my opinion, 10 too many Barbies in the house. No offense, young girls. Do you think about His coming? And if you do, doesn't it make you want to unclutter your life? Well, praise God. Being the church means being simple. It's just being who we are in Christ Jesus. They continued in commonality. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, I'm not going to read right now, but Paul had to actually instruct Timothy to instruct his church on how to behave toward each other. Because so quickly the church already began to pull back to protecting our stuff And Paul said, Timothy, you tell those who are rich, if they want to really be rich, give it up. Share. Store up for yourself treasure in heaven. It's not communism, it's commonality. Number four, they continued with solidarity. And number five, they continued with familiarity. Four and five, solidarity and familiarity. Please get this real quickly, verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind, solidarity, in the temple. And breaking bread from house to house, familiarity, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. I get so tired of hearing, and I've heard this over and over through the years, the first century church was a house church. And so we should be a house church. And I say, then you miss the whole point of the temple. Day by day, they were in the temple. And living in each other's, you know, from house to house, taking meals together, spending time together. Solidarity. When we gather together in Mass like we do right now, we get on the same page. We're hearing the same word. We're worshiping the same God. We are worshiping together. We're sharing our lives in a larger setting. And that's good. Temple. But we're also in each other's homes. House to house. It's not either or. It's both and. Solidarity as we gather together, familiarity in the houses. And by the way, this is not a format for small group ministry. Where do you get the idea that we need to have small groups in the church? Well, it says right here in Acts chapter 2 that you need to have small groups. So what we're going to do is we're going to have everybody sign up. And if you don't sign up, we're going to make you feel bad. And we're going to pressure you to sign up because you really need to be in a small group if you're part of this church. They never signed up for small groups in the first century. They just went to each other's homes because they couldn't stay away. They loved being together. I mean, don't miss the simplicity of that. They just loved being together. So they would meet together in the temple. They would worship. They'd take in the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, prayer. That would all take place together. And then they'd split off and go, hey, what are you doing? Well, I was going to go home. Yeah, I'm I'm not done. Can we hang? Yeah, come on over. And they took their meals together. Well, Rick, it says they were breaking bread together in their homes. Yeah, because I think communion happened a whole lot more often than once a week. I think it's a shame that a lot of churches share in the Lord's Supper once a month or once every six. 
Or maybe once a year as a ritual instead of constantly as a koinonia. And I would encourage you, keep some unleavened bread and keep some grape juice in your house. And when friends, believers come over, break bread together. Celebrate the Lord's Supper. Well, can we do that? Can we do that? They continued in solidarity and familiarity. There was togetherness. Note that. They took their meals together. There was gladness and sincerity of heart. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, this blows my mind. Favor with all the people. How many of you would describe the church in America today as having favor with all people? Now, I thought the same thing. And actually, the first century church, when it first got revved up, there was favor with all the people, but it didn't take long. In fact, it was just within a few years the persecution breaks out. We'll see that when we get a couple chapters down the line. And once that persecution broke out against church, uh, against the, the early church, it would go for 283 years unchecked, and upwards of 10 million Christians were martyred in the first 300 years of the church. Having favor with all the people? I originally was going to say this was unique to the first few weeks. I think I was wrong. Because as they continued with favorability, so you, and that's number six, continue with favorability, so you, so I, can even today continue with favorability among the people. What do you mean? Psalm 144.15 says, How blessed... How happy are those whose God is the Lord. Show of hands, how many of you would consider God to be your Lord? Are you happy? If God is your Lord, you are so blessed, so happy, so weird. Seriously, because it doesn't make sense. The joy that you have in Christ Jesus does not make sense when all the world goes wrong. It just doesn't make sense. If you're living in the world you don't have that same perspective, you look at someone who's a believer, who follows Jesus, who's happy about it, and you go, man, what is up with you? I kind of like you. Favorability. Romans 15, 13, Paul said, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hey, there are a lot of people feeling like America's going to hell in a handbasket right now. A lot of believers are starting to wonder, think that. I'm just as happy as a clam, though. This country could go upside down. But you know what? Happy is the man whose God is the Lord. It makes me different. A different breed, if you will. And when people look at you, when people look at me, when we walk with this kind of koinonia, with Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, regardless of persecution, Regardless if the government says you can't bake, you have to bake a cake for someone you don't want to, regardless of all that silly stuff. Okay. If the government comes along and say all churches lose their tax exempt status, I'd say, okay, how much do we owe you? It's not my money anyway, it's God, so God bless you. <laughs> all these things that people worry about, but you know what? My God is the Lord. And I'm happy in that. And it makes me different. And it brings about, at least one to one, it brings about a favorability, a grace. People look at you and go, okay, that's cool. I like her. I like him. There's something different. The government may be against you. The culture may be opposed to you. But if 
God is your Lord, you will still have favorability with people. It's part of who we are as we are changed by the Spirit of God. Well, verse 47 says, The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Number seven, the church grew with multiplicity. Great word. Let's see if I can explain this. Jesus said, I will build my church. And Jesus' method for building the church results in multiplicity. What does that look like? Listen closely. I'm almost done. I'm going to end on this. Most Christians, if you said, what do you think is the best way for mass evangelism to take place? Most Christians, or a large portion of Christians, would say, well, we've got to have like a campaign. Harvest Crusade. You know? Or Billy Graham Crusade. I mean, those are awesome, right? I went to several Harvest Crusades living down in Southern California. Great glorious deal. Loved them. Worship music and speakers and teachers and all this stuff. And then people would just flood onto the field of Angel Stadium and they would come to the Lord. Wow! Big turnout, big results. That's what we need. Or we need a mass revival. That's what we need. We need everybody, you know, like first day of the church. 3,000, one day, boom, that's what we need. Listen to this. Let's say we did that. Let's say here at the Bridge Fellowship, starting tomorrow night, we're going to start having revival meetings here at the church every night. And let's say something stunning took place. Thousands upon thousands of people from all over the island started showing up. And every night, every single night, 1,000 people gave their lives to Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? Anyone opposed to the idea? A thousand people a night come into faith in Jesus Christ. Wow! That'll change the world, right? At the end of 35 years, we would be further behind in terms of world evangelism than when we started. How's that possible? Because of the birth rate. Because if you track the birth rate in the world over 35 years, far more people are being born into the world without faith in Jesus than the number of people we could be seeing saved every night, a thousand a night, all the way across 35 years, far more people are being born into the world. So basically, all that work, all that effort, all that energy, and we just keep falling behind. Well, that's depressing. So what do we do? We let God take care of the multiplication. We focus ourselves simply on addition. How's that look? Think about it this way. Let's say you were the only person, the only Christian left on planet, planet Earth. Let's say it's Yeva. Yeva's the only one left. We all get raptured. <laughs> right, I know. Bus, you. Um, no, let's, let's just say that there were no other believers if whatever, you know, about big plague and we all died out because we all ate at the same food at the same picnic or something, you know. <laughs> And she's the only one left. But she prays and says, Lord, just give me the strength to keep preaching your word. And she keeps going. And in the first year, one person comes to faith in Jesus. Now, to my mind, that's a small church. <laughs> Two or three gather together in his name, he's there. So you got church. Two people after the first year. The two of them, Yeva and person number two, now go out and say, this year, Lord, give us just one more person each. And in the second year, now you got four people. Addition. It's simple, right? In the third year, you have eight. The fourth year, 
Well, now you're up to 16. Then 32. Then 64. Then 128. You're still not even close to the mass numbers that were being evangelized, right? Every night, the thousand during our big crusade. But you got 128. That's pretty good. The next year, 256. The next year, 512. Listen. In 35 years, the entire world would be saved. And it all happened because Yeva, <laughs> because one person said, I will do my best to save, to see one person brought to the Lord this year, just one. I'm not going to worry about big campaigns, and I'm not going to be knocking on doors and hoping that I can, you know, bring in tons of people to, to my church and bring tons of people to the Lord. No, just one. Just one. And in 35 years, the gospel would reach the entire world. See, that's multiplicity. That's the kind of thinking only God comes up with. I'm thinking big. I'm thinking campaigns. God goes, no, you just go talk to one person about Jesus. You tell one person. If we here in the Bridge Christian Koinonia, in the Bridge Christian Fellowship, if every person in our fellowship led one person to the Lord over the next two years, this building would be obsolete. We wouldn't have room. Just one. Okay, so you'd have a lot of church members. Pastor, is that what you're driving at? Nope. It's not my concern. I can tell you very honestly, Jeff can back me up on this, numbers and size with the Bridge Fellowship has never been my concern. Seeing one more person saved, that is my concern. And truly, the call on our lives, very, very simply, just bring one person to the Lord. Just one. Well, what if I do that? And what if over my entire lifetime, I only bring one person? Then you will have brought one person into eternity. How amazing is that? And it's not the evangelist that's called to that. It's you. And it's me. And in the meantime, we're just telling one person at a time, another person, we're just telling about Jesus. And God is taking care of the multiplication. Jesus is building His church. Are you the one for this year that God is trying to get a hold of? Do you know the one? There may be one person in your life, and as you pray, they keep coming to mind, and you're like, that's, that's the guy, that's the gal. She, she's the one I'm supposed to tell about Jesus. So tell him. Focus yourself on just one person for the year. See what God does. Because ultimately, gang, whoever believes on Jesus Christ, that He died, that He resurrected, that He's coming again, that person will have come, Hebrews 12.22, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And it's that simple. It's that simple. If your life is complicated, if things in relationship are convoluted, confusing, you're you're struggling, there's so much going on, and there's just all this clamor for your attention. Listen, Christ and His church are the everlasting antidote. It is so simple. 
the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. That's what the church does. All the rest is who we become by the power of the Spirit of God. Let's stand up together. Rachel's going to lead us in a song, and as she does, and as we sing together, prayer team, you can come forward. I want to invite you to come and pray. Get used to this. We do this every week. It's kind of predictable. But what happens as a result of the prayer, you cannot predict. So I invite you, if you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you would like to make Him your Lord and Savior today, come on forward. Maybe you want to be baptized today. Come on forward. We'll do that. If you're feeling weak, you want to be strengthened in the Lord, baptized in the Holy Spirit, come on forward. But I want to add one thing to it this morning. If there's someone on your heart that you know you are supposed to tell about Jesus, I want to challenge you to get out of your seat and come forward and pray with a brother or sister about that person today that you might set yourself on a path of bringing them to the Lord for their sake for eternity.